Aguilar, Wallace to his left, and he's on his way. 10, 9, 5, 3, cut down! Wonderful try! We have a mole, Jim. Digs like a demented mole there. He just bust through the defence. Just watch this. Good evening and welcome to the Molecast. Good evening. Good evening. We're going to start off by talking about Ireland's most underrated province, and that's not Connacht, because they won the league three years ago. It's Ulster, who made a remarkable recovery from what looked like uh, another season of transition uh, to winning five out of six European games, including away wins at Parky Scarlets and at Welford Road most recently. Um, And uh, I think it's... It's we're just talking about basically about um, how they've kind of been underrated and uh, what a good job they've done over the last uh, four or five months of the season. Yeah, the last time we talked in detail about Ulster, I made the uh, erroneous uh, remark that they should concentrate on the league because they didn't have a chance in the Heineken Cup. Um, I believe that at the time I thought it would have been a good approach for them. Uh, I later amended my statement to say that they should compete at home in the Heineken Cup, but that they should use the away games as essentially rest weekends. Now, they've beaten Scarlets and Leicester away this year. Now, their performance against uh, Racing in the first game of the group stages had a lot to recommend it as well. They were well beaten in the end, but they actually played some really good rugby. Um, I think it's been magnificent and remarkable coaching job from Dan McFarland. And there's uh, certain things which have been you know, quite obvious in that how much he's relied on specific players in specific uh, positions. Kieran Treadwell, Marcel Kutsia, Billy Burns, Stuart McCloskey. Um, but aside from that, he's actually brought a lot of young players into the team and given them um, both uh, significant game time just in terms of minutes on the pitch, but also high-level game time um, with particular reference in recent times to Robert Balakoon, um, who came through the uh, Irish Sevens programme and has emerged within, you know, 20 weeks or whatever as a Heineken Cup-level winger. When I when I watched Ulster earlier in the season, I thought that McFarland was one of these uh, sort of idealists as a coach. So we talked last year about Gregor Townsend and about Conor O'Shea and the way they approached it with uh, Italy and with or with Scotland and Italy respectively. That they wanted their teams to attack with the ball in hand. That they wanted them to uh, just play a lot of running rugby. Uh, in the same mode as uh, Pat Lamb coached Connacht in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, almost no matter where they were in the pitch and probably the implication being or a possible implication being from that that they weren't looking at developing a kicking game that they were not saying ignoring the set piece but that there's more than one way to play and they, yeah. only, they only wanted to play it one way and general play all general it, play was it the most appropriate for their team so when I watched Ulster play in the beginning of the season I watched Billy Burns just didn't kick the ball at all I watched them play a lot of rugby in the middle of the pitch where they were no threat like 50-60 metres away from the opposition try line I thought to myself jeez McFarland's just got a free pass here um, it's just got to be a season of this of, of them not kicking the ball maybe Burns can kick Um and I was like, sure he's a prop. Like, can he can you not work on the mall or like give them mm. something else? And no. hindsight, that was that was just way too short. So like I think that the the selection of youth because he hasn't just chosen guys just for the sake of it. Like he's not a chancer putting out young guys in the last four matches of the season and then like pointing in the truth going, Oh, like I gave loads of young lads a chance, I got yeah. all these young guys to try to keep his job. Like he's he's playing these young guys at a time when like Eric O'Sullivan. Amazing. Um, he so has like, been a revelation. He, he's been brilliant. And I was delighted to see, because Tony Smith always gets referred to <coughs> in these uh, articles about guys who have come through Trinity. Why 5 <laughs> And, you know, justifiably so. But if you're talking about forwards, and it was 
particularly prop forwards. Like Hugh Maguire is the man at Eton College Park. And like Hugh's been coaching there for 20 years and rarely gets a shout out. But, but, shout out, but like any prop who has come through Trinity owes it to Hugh and the the coaching work that he's done there. And Eric O'Sullivan makes like a boatload of tackles. But if you'd have asked Irish rugby fans who Eric O'Sullivan was, like Temple Oak and his family could have told you. And yeah, that, yeah. that was it. Like no one else is answering that question. No one's going to see him as a guy who's going to be starting uh, winning Heineken. Like he wasn't, I remember his, uh, coincidentally I remember him from uh, Leinster Schools, uh, Leicester Schools had an extremely strong year that year. Uh, Nick Timoney was on it. Um, Jerry Lockman. Uh, Ollie Yeager, who's now with the Canterbury Crusaders. Uh, Rory Maloney, who was briefly with uh, Connacht, uh, was on it. And then Ross Byrne, <coughs> Nick McCarthy, Billy Jardis, Fergal Cleary, Harrison Brewer, who was an outstanding team. I actually, I actually saw a bunch of games that they played in Donnybrook. And Eric Sullivan and uh, Ntinga and Pico were the sub-props from um, Temple O College and, and King's Hoss, respectively. And they were good players, but like, they couldn't get on the, the Leinster Schools team. And neither Eric Sullivan nor... Um, <clears throat> like, there was a lot of good props, actually, in that year. That chap Boomer from uh, Munster was there for the Irish in the 20s of the same year. Uh, Oshin Heffernan had come into the team as well. So he didn't get an Irish under-20s cap. Working his way up, continued to play, played well in, um, in Trin. Got, a, got, a, you know, got a, a couple of chances in the off-season, did well, got picked. And then McFarland just kept on picking him all the time. McFarland's picked Lowry. And you see Lowry yeah. going in at out half, you know, on a, on a sort of a ding-dong, on a HIA replacement. Yeah. Um, and Larry started matches at fullback, and he's not hiding guys. Like he picked Shanahan ahead of ahead of Cooney, and the confidence that that gives to guys is uh, is incredible. Now, so sort of for, for another obscure coaching reference, or relatively speaking, obscure coaching reference, um, Dan Soper is the skills coach. So Dan Soper is a Kiwi guy who was involved with, um, like he was coaching um, Ballon Hinch, he was okay. coaching Ban Bridge. He was coaching Ballyclare, I think. Comrades. I was going to say. So he won three. He won three schools medals with Orbe AI, um, and he got uh, like Manbridge and Ballon Hinch both progressed well. So here, here's a guy who's got proven coaching ability mm-hmm. and who really knows Ulster rugby. And I won't say like no one knows him. But this is not a high-profile appointment. Like, this yeah. isn't like getting Jared Bain to be your defence coach. Really. Yeah, no, or Felipe Contabomi to be our head coach. That's a no-brainer. Yeah. Um, and you look at Ulster's skills and you go, like, they're superb. So not only do they have the willingness to play from their own half, they have the ability now to play. Whereas, in contrast, I was watching Leicester, and who are being coached by Jordy Murphy, Jordan Murphy, and as they're going, like, for all the players that they have, their, their attack is... Is predictable. Like it's, it's just like it's, it's just it's pattern dribble. And that is a serious like that's a good Leicester backline. Loads of experience between Youngs, Ford, uh, Tamua, Tuilagi, an unbelievable form winger in Johnny May, and a couple of guys who. But that's five out of their seven backline. You go. That is a lot of attacking potential. That was a, and Jordan Murphy was a guy who was, you know, renowned as, uh, uh, like, a, I suppose, just such an attacking, talented player and a guy who understood the game from attacking from fullback, especially. And he's, he's finding the role of director of rugby has been. Has been a big step up from his. I think his, his other experience as a coach was as an assistant backs coach uh, to Matt O'Connor. And you, as 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 often happens, you don't see the uh, the abilities of a player directly translate to the abilities of the coach. You know, for example, Leinster hugely praised. Uh, Stuart Lancaster as a coach. Stuart Lancaster was like a back row. I think he was an open side, you know. But as an attacking coach, he, he's an amazing attacking coach. So 
the roles of, of uh, I know I, I always say this, they're in the same industry, they're not the same job. It's like piloting an aircraft versus running an airline. Um, in Jordan Murphy's defense, I think he was somewhat piloted into, or parachuted into a shit show. However, um, the two kind of, the two names you would, you would have thought least likely to see in the quarterfinals of the Heineken Cup are Edinburgh and um, and Ulster, and very much on the back of very solid coaching. So what do you think is playing a bigger factor in the underwhelming performance of English clubs? Is it the brutal calendar and their insistence on playing their frontline players all the time until they're injured? Or do you think there is a dearth of good coaching going on in the Gallagher Premiership? I, if I had to put one reason, I would say it's the latter. If, if you know, you can a, you can do some kind of percentage balance. Yeah, you know, yeah. A, sort of a regression analysis to you know what's the reason for Saracens have a great job. coach, and Mark McCall has been a great coach. Cur- interestingly, I or maybe not that interesting. I did a coaching course in two. It was in two thousand and two because the penalty shootout against the Spanish was on on the Sunday in the afternoon it was the, the, the Japanese World Cup uh, that Dan McFarland was on and he wasn't presenting he was one of the he was, he was the first guy I met it was, a, it was a rare occasion that I was actually early for something and uh, did you miss the anthems? Um, <laughs> well Alan curiously enough uh, Alan Clark who was coaching the Ospreys was one of the instructors and he didn't bother watching the match Um he had no interest in watching yeah. the, the Republic Southern um, Ireland Southern Ireland <laughs> yeah whereas everybody else is going like this, this is the only thing that's going on in town today not Alan Clark he wasn't bothered um, but Dan was on it and Small was on it Mark McCall they're both in the class and they're so it was a great coaching course yeah um, and uh, but like Small is proved like McCall can coach and McCall McCall coached Ulster and uh, it didn't end well from there. And then he went down to France. Uh, Jeremy Davidson got him a job down yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and like, you know, he kept working at it. And then he entered Saracens. And like Saracens were on the up, but they weren't. They weren't Leicester. They weren't Wasps. They weren't Bath. Yeah. Um, and they've become the pair. And then the other team in England is who are away at in front is Rob Baxter. And Rob Baxter is a good coach. Super coach. Exeter. I don't know what happened to them in their first two matches. Um, that's that's where they lost. That's where they yeah, lost control of the group they entirely. Gloucester, they drew at home. Against Their Munster. performance against Gloucester was appalling in uh, Windy Park. But their their display at the like I mean it wasn't a, you wouldn't want to watch that match every single weekend. But it was a fascinating match from a coaching point of view. And I think we'll get into it a bit more if I can remember what I was going to say about uh, Jordan Murphy. And we're talking the, about the balance yeah, between the the, balance, the right? schedule and the coaching. I think standard. I think, I think looking at it. Um, the English exec, the English club exec or board, for the most part, don't seem to understand what they're doing appointing coaches. Now, maybe that's harsh. You look at Bath and you go, well, they got Todd Blackadder. Todd Blackadder was coaching the Crusaders. Like, you know, wh- where could possibly, Seven years or something Where like could that. possibly be a better place to go? Yeah. So, that, like, immediately that doesn't stand up to scrutiny. But you look at Ireland and you go, like, Johan van Graan, you know, you would have been sort of scratching your head in, in a lot of ways. He wasn't, like, he's not the normal Nick Mallard, Wayne Smith, you know, Jesus, uh, who's, who's the other guy? J- Jake White. Jake White. Who's he going to get? He's not, he's not one of those guys. But, like, Van Graan. Dingo Deans. Is Dingo, yeah. Van Graan, like, is, he's a real rugby head. Um, and he's a real proper coach. Like, Andy Friend, I was there going, oh, man, like, Andy Friend is just a made a noose of force. This is just a job for the boys. And we're talking about teams that, like, were trying to chuck it in Europe. Like, Connick just kept on picking half their B team, and they qualified. Yeah. <laughs> like, they didn't even mean to. I, like, I'm, I'm convinced that Connick really wanted to concentrate, still want to concentrate on the league, and they've somehow found themselves, despite their best efforts, in, in the quarterfinals, because Friend has got them playing well. And not just Friend, um, who's their forwards coach? Uh, Jimmy Duffy. Mm. Jimmy Duffy has their pack really well drilled. So all the Irish coaching, all the Irish, like, Coach, they've all got good coaches. Guys are really working at it, and it, it seems to be a real point of difference. And okay, look, Leicester didn't plan to have Jordy 
Jordan there, Jordan Murphy there, like until Matt O'Connor just, you know, spilled the soup all over himself or pissed in the soup and then spilled it or whatever. He did. Like, that wasn't the overarching strategy, but that's, that's where they're at. Um, I think there is a point where there's, like, there's a lot of good coaches in the Pro 14. Um, obviously, Pivac is still here this year. Scott's not going well, but he doesn't have anything to prove in, in, at Pro 14 or European level anymore. Like, he's proven himself an outstanding coach. Dave Rennie is a superb coach up in Glasgow. Uh, Cockrell is obviously... Cockrell doesn't have anything to prove in terms of domestic coaching. He's a super coach. Uh, there's a lot of good coaches out there. Kieran Crowley, I believe, is coaching Treviso. Treviso. Again, who has a, an incredibly long CV. He's been coaching teams for 30 years. Probably 30 at this stage, isn't it? Ooh, 25, uh, maybe? 30 would go back to... A long time. Yeah, a long time. He's been for the All Blacks in 1994. Yeah, so 25 years, 25, let's say. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of good coaches in this league and a lot of... Uh, and there is also the nature of the Pro 14 now is that it was the last professional competition to arrive in in terms of the teams that play in it. it was, there was always uh, international rugby, then the Heineken Cup has existed for whatever, 24 years now. And then the Celtic League slash Pro 12, 14 arrived. So it has its, it has a, it is it it is lowest in the in the in the in the tiers of the the uh, sort of in the hierarchy of the rugby that's played, whereas the English and French still have this um, an unresolved um, debate or an unresolved argument in their own heads about what is more important, Europe or their national league, um, and I think that there is I think that. The English league is uh, destructive in terms of how it's played, attritional or destructive, whichever way you want to describe it. And I think that I I I, I think it's a bit pat to just disregard and say, "Oh, it's just an excuse." I think it's quite valid, but I haven't seen many people try to upset that in the way that, for example, Clive Woodward did a long time ago with London Irish by playing a, a different style of rugby, the style of rugby that got him promoted to coaching England very quickly and uh, you don't see certainly I haven't seen in a long time much innovation in how uh, English clubs play either in either in their uh, their own league or in Europe no and the English have produced really good underage teams for certainly the last six seven years seven years like really competitive under 20s teams to, to the point where themselves and New Zealand are the two best. And you'd sort of think, oh, it'd be New Zealand just miles out ahead. And maybe the South Africans, maybe the French would have a team occasion. Maybe the Welsh would have a team occasion because they've got so many good underage players. But almost invariably, it's it's England or New Zealand are the teams to beat. Mm-hmm. It, and it, it's it's them that are square enough head to head. And they produce really good players. And then, and that's all at a sort of, at an really at a national level. Yeah. At a, like at a, at a centrally resourced, coordinated Team England level, and then which I think Stuart Lancaster had a lot to do setting up, and John Callard. I think that they'd be the two guys that I'd associate the most with it. And then, for whatever reason, they just don't filter guys through. Yeah, and there is this. There are every well this year. I've noticed a new excuse in that Irish players are concentrated in a small number of teams, and if England had the same, then the English teams would be similarly going well. England has a shitload more players in Ireland. Like, England has an enormous amount of players, the most players in the world. Like, they're, the number of players they have uh, is reflected in the number of professional teams they have. And those professional teams have as, you know, as wide a catchment or as big a catchment in terms of population as the Irish teams, probably bigger in a, in a number of... And there's, there's geographic diversity with those. I mean, there's a really good spread... With the English teams, yeah, Newcastle, Sale, from Newcastle, Sale, Exeter, down to, yeah, down to Exeter, the Midlands, two teams, yeah, you know. So I think that particular excuse is uh, is phony, and it came from the tail of a pony. My own personal opinion is that the current round of grumpy looking and eternally stressed directors of rugby who run the English clubs are kind of like 
Alardici and bluffers who are like big on stats and like sort of a stodgy brand of the sport, but uh, ultimately are not that talented. Well, there's like, one of the things which we didn't really comment on at all because it's sort of a, quite a niche thing was um, Diamond Geezer up in, in sale having this big blowout and behaving completely unprofessionally with a, uh, I think, an independent journalist in, when, in a post-match press conference about an article that said journalists had written at the start of the season saying that Diamond was essentially a bully who, who and Sale weren't going to go anywhere. And this was after a game in which Sale beat Northampton well. And D- Diamond made it a personality conflict, you know, and, you know, invited a man outside to discuss it, you know, in, in, in inverted commas there. And it's, there is this, I think he's, I think he's a particular um personality and I don't think that all English coaches are like that and there is there's always room in the game for people who are good motivators within the confines of a changing room or on a training pitch you know and sometimes that is is about you know aggression in some degrees um <clears throat> but yeah I, again just to restate myself it, there's not an awful lot of innovation there no and when we're talking about Ulster I would have to say that Ulster's player of the season to this point is Will Addison. Who oh, was yeah. In sale. I'd never heard of him. This is one thing which uh, I think is really interesting. When we, uh, just talking about uh, three players have arrived from English clubs to Irish provinces as fully formed professionals. Now, they're all younger when, when I looked at their ages than, than I actually thought they were. You know, uh, Mike Haley, the. Munster fullback is born 94. Uh, I think Will Addison is, so that makes him 24. Will Addison is 26 and Billy Burns is 23 or 24. These guys have come with a huge amount of uh, professional experience. And I, I, I find this sort of a little bit unremarked upon in that when people think of what used to be called the Exiles, is now called IQ, Irish Qualified Rugby, they think of getting guys the likes of Kieran Treadwell in who are maybe underage English internationals and seeing if they can essentially flip them to play for Ireland, take advantage of their Irish parentage or Irish heritage. Whereas this seems to me, while I, I don't doubt that there was uh, an invitation from the provinces to each respective player, but it seems that there are sort of established English players with Irish heritage who are now going, oh, I can go and play in uh, in Ireland, professional rugby in Ireland, and that's a better option for my career than playing for the club I grew up with, which I think is a quite a big change because I I'm not I haven't done the research in this, but I'm sure that there are other players like that. It wouldn't. I, uh, my personal thing is that it was a new Sephora driven. Uh, scheme. So Mike Haley had the interview in the Irish Times at the weekend when he said the monster approached him when he was 21. Okay. He wasn't, you know, he'd been in sales since he was 13. Uh, he wanted to stay in sale. You know, he played for England when he was younger. He pretty well, you know, didn't even say he didn't want to play for England anymore. I'd say if England, Fetty Jones is to ask him to play, you go, uh, yeah, great. How soon, how soon can I be injured in training? Um, yeah, exactly. I'll, I'll tackle back for a bit of good Apollo there. <laughs> what are those um, appearance bonuses again? <laughs> And uh, I, I think that I think one of the challenges for any English coach, going back as long as I can remember, is that you've got too many players. It's like yeah. who you know. So how how do you pick your best fifteen? Because there's always some new kid on the block. Like Danny Cipriani being the obvious case. Like Danny Cipriani was, and before him, Garrity, and bef- like Ryan Lamb. You know. And there's probably going back every single year or a few years, there's been some cause celebrity who's going to be the next big thing in England. And oftentimes he isn't. Um, so the challenge is really like, how do you, get, how do you select your best 15? Mm. You've got so many guys to choose from. When the media is insistent that you pick you know, the latest, their latest darling, just to give them something new to write about. Um, and I think that the challenge is, in England, if you hadn't made it, make it until you're 23 or by your 23, 
like you're kind of you're not really up to it like there was no way Addison will Addison was going yeah. to get picked for England or will get picked which actually goes against the strength of the English league uh, in that you know because it's a, a broad league with a you know 12 teams in it there is there should be loads and loads of players competing at a high level against each other so you should be able to uh, one of the guys that we reference with, with regards to this is guys who just hit their peak and are playing well when they're 27, 28, 29 at their physical peak with a lot of experience behind them at club level maybe not identified early as like a, oh his captain is 21 you know they start actually playing well and then they get selected but it t- does mean that you don't have the same um, you don't have the same sort of idea of what your team is going to be for sort of three years in a row. You haven't identified, you said, this guy is like Tyg Furlong or Ian Henderson. He's going to be in this team in two years' time and he's going to be in there for six years or eight years or ten years. You know, that they, their, their, their league should lend itself to it being a more turnover in terms of the international team, I think. Yeah, because when I think of the guys, certainly some of the guys who have been the best English players, and I'm going back a few years now, but like, I think it was Dick Greenwood, um, like was going for a leak before a match uh, up in again up in Preston, Preston Grasshoppers, and Wade Dooley walked in beside him, just blocked out the sun, and he was like, "Who the fuck is this guy?" Um, like Mike Teague was playing for Spartans and then ended up playing for Gloucester and like was the Lions player to see series mm. back in nineteen eighty nine. Like Dean Richards was dropped for the ninety one Cup final. Uh so Mick Skinner and Mike Teague could play. Um Neil Back was something of a cause celebrity, but wasn't yeah. the guy who was picked at school. And Martin Johnson refers to it and as, you know, they picked some public school boy right in Backy from like somewhere in Coventry, some like, you know, comp in Coventry. Yeah. But he just goes like, you know, Backy was an animal in school. It was obvious that he was an animal. Um, so that's really English rugby strength is the likes of Skinner and Teague and Dooley and Neil Back. Like these, these guys who are proven proper men. Yeah. Rugby players. Um, and just, just that get us off the... I think, I think where that brings us on to is reader. What it, what it makes me think of actually is that a lot of the English teams are just going through the motions. When and you say uh, that, what do you mean by going through? I always think of that as just fulfilling a fixture. But I, I don't think Wasps were just fulfilling a fixture against well, Leinster. I can understand that they had nothing to play for in the competition. The thing with having loads of players and not having being able to develop a clear vision of what your team is is that there should be loads of competition, and it should be really hard to get to get the jersey. But I think there's the team that Stuart Lancaster developed. There was a very clear vision of yes. what that team was with the exception of the centres, which was seen to be a revolving cast of whoever played best in the last couple of weeks in the Premiership. And I think Eddie Jones took that and ran with it as far as he could and then didn't really know what to do when their parts were all broken and injured. And I don't think... I think he's, I think the team he's putting back together, or like the squad he named for this uh, Six Nations, and the team he's, he's going to look to... It was going to be Stuart Lancaster's team again, pretty much. Yeah, but it is like when I looked, when I read down through the name in in the English squad, I was going, "Jesus, a lot of good players there." Like, yeah, like, it, it, like Ford gets a game at out half, and he's just not their best out half. Well, Farrell is now, I think, established as, as an out half, and I think Ford is just his backup. That's yeah, that's, that's my right. reading of it. Yeah. Um, but like Ford never deserved a game at out half. He was never better than Farrell. Oh, I thought that they. I thought it gave them a real threat. I have. To, I. I disagree with that. I thought it gave them a real threat in the middle of the park, having the two guys who could play. Yeah, who could read the game, who could pass, who could both kick, and it meant you could play Manatu Alagi or Ben Teo at second centre, which would give you either. With Ben Teo, gives you a really good solid defence, um, and you just try to skip him as much as possible, or sort of have him running dummy lines if you want to go wide, and with Manatu or just Alagi, give him the ball and trail him. It gives you, or just give him the ball on trailer. And with Manu, it gives you a real block-busting presence. Now, you know, in theory, when he was fit, or certainly it did a few years ago. But I think in the same manner, it means that you can pick, um, it means you can pick 
basically the similar sort of centre. Like if, if Manor is not available, you pick Ben Teo. Mm. You get much the same thing. You know, little bits of trade off here and there, and it's probably more of a Six Nations discussion. But I. I do remember we got this email which I read months and months we got about three of them asking us to review some survey that this guy had done and like, we never check our email so this was months after and uh, it was it was a survey of English rugby and like it was just all about weights and creating <laughs> it's like really? I never yeah. saw that oh, it wasn't worth reading like it was except from the insight that it gave you sort of going like where's the ball skills where's like Where's the appreciation of the game? Like, where's yeah. understanding the man? Like, it wasn't anywhere. It was just weights and creating and like smashing each other, and you're gone. Oh, I despair. And there is, there is, there, there is, is space for that. There is space in the game for for running into people. Yeah, you know, huge it's, men running into each other. Yes, <laughs> okay. yeah, I yeah. keep on going on about how important it is. <laughs> <laughs> they don't build them like that anymore. He won't like that. He's one of a kind. He just burst through the defence. Referee blows for half time. Well, speaking of people running into each other, um, I'm going to paraphrase a quote here. Rugby is made up of, subje- of subjective feeling, of suggestion, and in that, Thumman Park is unbeatable. Put a shit hanging from a stick in the middle of this passionate, crazy stadium, and there are people who will tell you it's a work of art. It's not. It's shit hanging from a stick. Valdano. Jorge Valdano via rugby there. Um, I thought the first game in Sandy Park had this sort of like tenseness to it because I I love games where there's a massive gale blowing down the pitch and the two teams have to work out how they're going to deal with it. Uh, and like, I love games when, when one of your teams isn't involved. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and like and sort of estimating what, what how many points the wind is worth. Yeah, and that that game. It like it simmered and simmered and simmered, and then it never came to the boil, and it ended up being a draw, and that was a great result for Munster. The game last Saturday evening simmered in the first half, and then just went lukewarm in the second half, where they just kept on knocking the ball on, and then at every clutch moment when Exeter had a chance to do something good, just balls it up. It it was not a good game. Yeah, you had a much more uh, negative opinion on that than. I did. Well, I'd agree with you in terms of um, the quality of attack, which I, I felt that extra actually showed something. In um, Munster's attack was very limited. Like Conor Murray completely took control of Munster possession. Joey Carberry didn't get an awful lot of the ball, and Munster showed very, very little in terms of uh, attacking backline players or even linking between forwards and backs. Uh, in defence, it was it was a, a really high standard. I, I felt that the line speed, the level of um, intensity that both sides showed, the impact of the hits and the commitment throughout the 80 minutes from both sides was, was, was enthralling. Absolutely enthralling. Um, and I felt by far the most influential player in the pitch was Tyke Byrne. He could have won two Man of the Match awards. Uh, he he put so much pressure on Exeter's breakdown and their famous ball retention that they would have to commit a third pair, a lot of times even a fourth pair, just when he was, just when he was in the breakdown to move him. Now, he, I think he won two... Uh, penalties and maybe one clean turnover, but he was making them commit so many players who would otherwise be forming, you know, a three-man pod or overloading one side. And because of their young out half, uh, Simmons's younger brother, who was doesn't have the experience to direct the game in the way that maybe Steenson might have been able to. He was still playing the same patterns that they're used to playing, except they were playing now. They were playing five attack six you know if they're gone they weren't able to get overload because they had to commit loads more men to the breakdown and that was very well CJ Sander had a big impact as well but Ty Byrne was just in his uh, without the ball he was amazing 
I'm trying to remember the match. Rafa Benitez gave uh, an interview years ago talking about uh, Rigo Saki's AC Milan playing somebody. And basically, like, that all the lines were compact and like both sides played a really high back four. And basically, the entire football match got played into 30 metres in the middle of the pitch. And Rafa was just like, ah, oh, it was it was a work of art. It was yeah. just, just two brilliantly engineered defences giving nobody any room. And just they're going, sounds dreadful to watch. But yeah. I thought that... Exeter going over on Saturday evening had all the hallmarks of 20 years of the Heineken Cup of an English team getting bonus pointed, uh, like maybe, you know, maybe being in a sort of on the scoreboard after 30 minutes, you know, maybe being a point up, maybe being two points down and Munster getting like 31 points, winning 31-12. I thought Munster would win fairly handily, yeah. uh, It never came about. It went down to the wire that Exeter could have snatched it yeah and it all seemed to me because of rob baxter rob ba- like exeter never wavered exeter knew exactly how they wanted to play the game it was it was and to my like i was curious was going, like, how has he taken the wind out of munster sales like munster absolutely hosed leinster yeah in like in momentum okay like granted they didn't create a try they scored from an intercept but like they were they were the dominant team in that like Leinster were up against it they weren't the dominant team no and Exeter so like what did Exeter do and I was I was looking at it and I was there going okay well this is my bias that I've I've talked about beforehand but I thought that Baxter wanted Munster Carberry in particular to play from his own half so Baxter was just like we're going to kick the ball down we're going to chase. We're not going to put it in touch. We're not, and like, we're just going to keep doing it. We're not going to counterattack against you mm-hmm. guys. We're not going to allow you to put us under pressure in our half. We are going to get the ball into the middle of the pitch and we are going to hammer up on Carberry because Carberry's just going to put it through the hand. Like, he's not going to kick it against us. And Conor Murray just kicked it. Murray went, forget it. I'm yeah. not giving this guy the chance to, because Carberry had loose passes in that match and no kicks. And as brilliant as he looked against Gloucester when he was attacking in their 22 and when they were on the front foot. And he looked wonderful. He did not look wonderful against Exeter. No, he... And I, I thought that, that was, it was a match. and But, like, you know that with Joey Carberry, he will try to play rugby yeah. on the halfway line of the 60 metres. When, if it goes wrong, it doesn't... Nec- like, you know, it doesn't have a happy ending all the time when it goes wrong there. Yeah. Because all... Like, Exeter needed... Like, if they kept on getting penalties down there, if they turned over the ball and then put Munster under pressure and then got, like, three points, six points, nine points, it was cup match rugby. Well, and Baxter... And it demonstrated to me this this reservoir of rugby knowledge that Rob Baxter has. And I'm, I'm bemused as to what happened to them. Because I tipped them. I thought that... Oh, I thought, I thought that I thought Munster... That, I thought that they were going to be a real... Oh, in this competition? Yeah. Yeah, so did I. But uh, they, they lost it in their first two games. Yeah. Uh, obviously, Munster played, you know, really well, really intelligently in, in Sandy Park in the first game. A draw, which was a bad result for Exeter and a good result for Munster, but a terrible result for, for Exeter was when they lost to home to Gloucester and played shit. Yeah, yeah. You know? And they went away next, uh, and they, you know, they... They uh, like losing in cast is is losing in cast. Like it, it's a tough place to win. Mm. Um, but losing at home to Gloucester was a dreadful those, those result. First two weekends have just been music. And the other thing is, which we've uh, certainly have mentioned, uh, talked about a little bit. They had to perform a specific. They had a, a set goal that they had to reach against Munster, which was more than just winning the game. Yeah, and maybe. If they'd well, not, there's no maybe about it. If they'd performed up to their standard in their first two games, but especially the game against Gloucester, and it had come down to just trying to get a win against Munster, that would have been a little bit different uh, in terms of what they needed to do um, and how they could have approached taking points. But uh, I, I thought it was an enthralling. I really enjoyed it, and the, the atmosphere in Tolman Park was it was a Big loud game oh, throughout. Great crowd, yeah. Really good crowd. I thought that uh, the referee did a very good job, and I uh, really, really enjoyed it without thinking or without coming away thinking, "Oh, that was an epic or that was a classic." It was. It was neither, but it was an enthralling game. And the previous weekend, the crowd up on Ravenhill was uh, the some of the games of the season. Yeah, the the European. So you know, we were talking about the fact that the quarterfinals could have. 
thrown up three repeats of pool matches and no one wanted to see that and I was like oh groan and the fact that they didn't is is, is exciting the fact mm. that the two French teams are playing each other all, all the matches are really good head to heads you really look forward to seeing them um, and look yet again the, the competition is delivered speaking of delivering lovely passes Segway. The thinking man's Joey Carberry <laughs> dotted down beside the sticks for Leinster, um, and you were very impressed with him. Yeah, I think that Noel Reed, and I have to say, the, the, the sometimes stroke, often stroke, much maligned Noel Reed uh, in these quarters. It's been a source of frustration, and I, he's, you know, speaking about guys in the Premiership playing at 26, playing at 27, and really fulfilling. Like, Reader's had his best season by a distance for Leinster. And he's had a lot of seasons. He's a guy who's played a lot of matches. He's a guy who's, what's he got, like, one cap, two caps. He was on a tour of our Cap, Argentina. yeah, cap. Um, you know, but he, he's he's got too many defeat. Like, his defence is his main thing. Like, to play at... Which, which has improved, but which at is, one stage was appalling. To play international centre. Yeah. Against uh, Bundy Aki and Robbie Henshaw. And Bundy, like, Bundy hasn't been there all the way through. Um, and before that, like Darcy and Draco, so that that that's kind of Reader's peer group in the in the centre. Um, that that was never going to happen for him. So he's available for Leinster for an awful lot, whereas most of the Leinster guys are gone uh, during the international windows. But you alluded to it, like he he came on, and the amount of excitement and the the sort of the the energy. The kind of amorphous, vague terms that he gives to the Leinster backline, and it's not the only time. Like when he came on against Toulouse, he was involved in a counter attack, and like guys were running off him. Was it was it Gibson Parker, James Lowe, oh, yeah. in the middle of the field were running off him? And I remember a match in December 2016 where Ross Byrne played um, out half down in Thomond, and uh, Munster won, you know, fairly, yeah, very fairly handily, handy. yeah. But Reader came on at 10 for the last 10 minutes and Leinster all of a sudden were a threat. Yeah, and it happened again in, in the recent game. Do you remember that? Uh, very recently, the burn burner that uh, against Connacht in the RDS, just uh, yeah. uh, just before or after Christmas. Uh, Reader came on and Leinster were chasing a you know, fairly significant deficit against Connacht. And all of a sudden, Reader's are going, listen... All we have to do is give me the ball in the middle of the park and I will move it extremely wide to Adam Byrne quickly as possible. Adam Byrne's going to run up the wing, run past a few people, smash over and give it back to me. And we'll have made 60 yards. He just played three times. Um, he's, uh, he's, you know, long been renowned as being a really good passer and he has a sort of a will-o'-the-wisp type of ability to go past people without, you know, uh, having there's the quickest feet in the world. Um, but I think one of the things which I was really, um, I, I was sort of looking for him to do it last season and it didn't really happen was step in and show more authority in terms of, um, because at that stage, uh, Lens were carrying Kyle Marsh as a fourth choice out of half. And I was just thinking of the economics of the squad, like we we're never going to play Marshy, uh, and they're going, well, and Reader was a one-position man, and at that stage he'd fallen to third choice 12 because Henshaw was there, and if it wasn't Henshaw, it was Issa. And you're going, Jesus, Reader, he should be, ability, he should be our, our you know, fourth choice 10, third choice 12, backup goal kicker. And it, it happened at the start of this season, largely because Carberry moved. All of a sudden, um, Karen Frawley got injured in one of the, the warm-up games, and Sexton wasn't there, so it was, it was uh, Ross, Ross Byrne. Ross and, uh, Byrne wasn't there because yeah. he was on the tour and he wasn't meant to be back. Yeah, so it was Reader started playing 10, kicking a few goals, and all of a sudden he was showing a lot more authority in the pitch than he'd ever shown before, which was, was to my mind, had been the, the biggest part of his game which was missing because his defence had improved over last season. And, you know, Reader is durable. He's really injured. Um but I think this season, and he's had previous good seasons, the time that he got his cap was because he'd played extremely well under Matt O'Connor. You know, he'd scored some like seven or eight tries in most of them in the second half of the season. But he always had these flaws in his games. And to me, the, the bigger flaw rather than his defense was actually 
that he didn't show authority on the pitch. Yeah, and I made I made the universal sign of take the stage there. I absolutely agree with you. <laughs> you say what I think, um, which isn't going to come across in a podcast. And it was if you back it out and you go how well he's attacking, how much energy he gives to his back line, how much, uh, and maybe he's a super sub. But yeah, you'd think he's a super sub at ten. Like th- this guy gives you so much pop off the bench, gives you so much direction. And you go, how has it never happened? And like, as well as that, they're obviously big fans of Reader because they keep on picking him. Like yeah, they, they, they picked him for years. Like different coaches have picked him. He was there with Schmidt, and all the way through all the different coaches that Leinster have had. And how has he never made it at ten on, until this season, where he's kind of played now and again at ten? And it goes back to that. It goes back to that authority. And was it a maturity thing? Was is it just lacking in him? Anyway. The reason I say it is that uh, Ross Byrne became a man in the last two years. So <laughs> I mean, that was, you know, we all, we've talked about this down through the years about, you know, when is when is it actually acceptable to start criticising players? Like, you know, when they're young, it's like, oh, he's got, you know, he's only a young fella. Don't and be such a bollocks. <laughs> he's, he's got great, he's got great potential, and young guys get brought into the the international squad, and it gives them exposure, and they get used to our setup and all that sort of stuff. And it must be like when you get dropped. It's just, nah, we're picking Jack Hardy ahead of you. He's like, burn. You know? yeah. And then he got clobbered by love of a lad. And you're there going, oh, what a terrible week. And then and then Reader came on and was involved and scored the best try from number 10. You're going, oh, it's, it's not been a good week for Ross Byrne. And yet, Ross is the man who's been picked to play at 10 from being a kid. And, being a, yeah. and, and to the stage where, and I'm going all over the place with this one, but... Uh, and I'll come back and criticise Ross Byrne. Don't, don't, think, don't think I'm going to pass up that opportunity. <coughs> but I was, I was looking at Jordan Armour play fullback again, and I was there going, I'm not buying this. I think, like, I think Jordan Armour is a super rugby player, and he, he shows like abilities of being, like he shows his capability of being a super rugby player fullback, but like not very much. And I was there going, Leinster and Irish rugby have a real issue with fullback. It used to be scrum halves, and you know, that, as well, obviously being addressed by Conor Murray, but you know it, it seems to be and, and since then, you and know, since every, then, every you know every every province has, has got a got a pretty well. Yeah, it's like fullback. Like we're screwed. Rob Carney is definitely going to be picked for the World Cup. Um, he's definitely going to start all these matches. Um, and it sort of brings to light how much of a specialist position fullback mm-hmm. is. And you know, so I'm going to say moving out half there. But I was looking at Leicester and I was going, there's a real argument to get Kieran Frawley playing fullback more yeah. and more. Because like, he's big, he gives you that second playmaker. Personally, I would have rather Carberry had stayed at Leinster. Now, like, I'm speaking from a Leinster perspective, and played fullback and given Leinster that second distributor option. And it meant that he's on the pitch and it means that whatever qualms I have him about out half don't have to be addressed. Because he's just got like, just, just play, play that sort of Damien McKenzie they played yeah. the Joey Carberry road. Cooper Cronk. We're not expecting you to be Rob Carney, right? But like you'll get better at, at those sort of bits. But like you're going to give us things that nobody else. Like can how give us. good was he against Wasps? Yeah. Do you remember that? Playing, right. So that's my personal thing, and I do like that idea of having uh, a second playmaker playing a fullback. Yeah. Um. So maybe that's Frawley, right? So that's that's an aside, and really, what I thought, what a, like what. Reader's arrival brought into light about Ross Byrne is my big criticism about Ross Byrne is that he just hasn't learned how to pass and run at the same time. Pass, run, and breathe. Yeah, pass, run, and breathe. Yeah, that like you know, it's he just he passes like a statue. He 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 cannot. It's, it's like he's a, it's like a, he's a Sabudio player or something. <laughs> he he and it just kind of gone. Oh man, like if you could just threaten the line. He, made, he found himself in space against Toulouse and like just panicked. And you're sort of going, that's grand. Like, there's nothing wrong with being slow. Like, people are slow. There's nothing you can do about it. But you don't have to be... Like, you don't have to be Joey Carr. Like, yeah. You don't have to be Adam Byrne playing at, at first receiver to be an out half. You just have to be a threat. Yeah. You have to make it that somebody has to commit to tackling you. And you have to have the ability to throw a short pass and a long pass. Well, I think both, I think both hands, right? So that, yeah. that's four passes. If you can do that, you've got everything else. But you can't. So yeah. you don't. <laughs> I think he's made made some improvements in that regard. I do like it. 
you, you can't watch them without noticing it. Um, but I've always, I've always, uh, and I, I saw Ross Byrne playing that in that uh, Leinster Schools team years ago now, uh, and I remember just looking at him and classifying as I do sometimes in my head. I just, I just, got, just went tall, Raj. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> you know, it's. It, I still sort of sometimes uh, think of him like that. Less so, less so these days. Uh, he's sort of you know becoming his own out half because he plays a lot for Leinster especially he plays an awful lot of rugby he league. does a job like he beats Toulouse yeah. he was on a team that yeah. beat Toulouse by double figures like and he's, you know, good at, he's really good at certain n- no out half apart from out halves which don't go any further like Garrity for example are at their best when they're 23 so I expect that he will improve that that part of his game That's he's got right. he's got a particularly well suited coach in Felipe Contabomi in terms of a guy who played a huge amount of, of 10 and threatened the game line now, Felipe is a much better athlete than Ross Byrne was, but he will push him to to not become tall, Raj. You know, to but I think that that is his um that's that's his basic setting and he's a he's a super kicker. A oh, yeah. super kicker. And again, you know, it's unfashionable. Uh, like my penchant for players running over other players. But if you have a guy who can maneuver you around the pitch who is reliably going to get you 30 to 4 metres with line kicks, not just off you know, penalty kicks or whatever, who can put in a pinpoint cross kicks. It may be not what people think of the Leinster way, but the Leinster way, you know, might change a bit. Now, the other, the other option is, is that you don't move Frawley to full back and you say, Frawley, we expect you to challenge uh, Ross Byrne. Yeah, and you do get out and you go, look, these are, like, we're not just... Because Frawley's a great kicker. Yeah. Not quite as, not not, not quite, not as polished as, as Ross Byrne in terms of his overall kicking game, but in terms of striking the ball, length, uh, it's really good. Yeah. I was, um, I was impressed with Harry Byrne when he's an under 20. Now, he's going to get fewer chances that if Leinster are going to pick Ross Byrne and Frawley as 10, Harry yeah. Byrne is not going to get much of a shout. That's a, that's a big thing for like, there has to be a gap for you to move into, you know, unless you're a freak show, like a James Ryan level of amazingness or even Larmer. Like there wasn't really a gap for Larmer. He just sort of made a gap for himself. Um, so you have to take chances early on and, and certainly in the current Leinster setup. I can see Larmer playing fullback for Ireland in the World Cup final and like being man of the match, and I'd be just like, ah, man. <laughs> yeah. I never bet Ulster winning the championship. <laughs> I really got well, this one. Well, if, if that's the if that's the, the least of our problems, yeah. Now, will we? Uh, I was going to say I was going to round off uh, Ross Byrne's terrible week when he gets dropped for his little brother, <laughs> 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 but I don't think that will happen just yet. <laughs> <laughs>